To the Ryan Hickey Show, where else but the Worldwide Sports Radio Network? Thanks so much for taking time and joining us right here on this Thursday morning, making us a part of your morning. As always, we are coming to you live from where else but the Big Italy Pizzeria Studios, whether it's great pizza, hot heroes, and phenomenal dinners. Make sure you check out BigItalyPizza.com to find a location near you. We have a loaded, loaded, loaded show today. A lot of NBA Finals coverage. Uh, game 3 in the books last night. Celtics take a 2-1 series lead. We'll hit on a lot of that. And let's start right now. Because for me, it is absolutely time. I am hitting the panic button right now if you're watching on the video. I am hammering the panic button if I am the Warriors. It is absolutely time to panic if you are Golden State. I thought last night's Game 3 showed you one thing. The only team... That is beating the Celtics are the Celtics. They're a better team than the Warriors. When all things are equal, when the Celtics are playing their best game versus the Warriors playing their best game, Boston is winning that. Boston is winning that matchup when they are playing crisp, clean basketball. The only thing, the only way in my opinion, after watching last night and watching so far the first three games of the series, the only way Golden State is winning the title this season is if Boston continues to just kill themselves with turnovers, with poor offensive execution, and defensive lapses. They have been their own worst enemy at times this postseason. We saw it in the Bucks series, we saw it in the Heat series, and we saw it even in Game 2 and in parts and shades of Game Number 1 as well. The only team beating the Celtics in the NBA Finals is the Celtics. When they're not hurting themselves, when they're not turning the ball over, when they are, are executing, this is over! The Celtics are winning the finals. And I thought game three was the perfect example of that. The Warriors played a pretty good game. The Warriors shot well. Klay Thompson woke up knocking down shots. Steph Curry goes for 30 more points. 31 to be exact. Didn't matter, still lost by 16. Why? Because the the Celtics are a better team, and when they play well, they're not they're not losing. They're not getting beat. They won by 16. We just talked about the Warriors playing well. The Warriors made more threes than the Celtics. The Warriors shot a slightly better three-point percentage than the Celtics. The shooting numbers were pretty much equal in terms of percentages. And again, two of your best players for the Warriors in Stephen Clay played well. At least in the statute, 31 points, 25 points. Didn't matter. Celtics won by 16. Why? They are the flat-out better team. The Celtics are bigger, faster, more athletic, tougher, that was all on display in game number three. And as long as that continues, they are winning the finals. Let's look at some of the areas where the Celtics have just hurt themselves big time in the, fi- uh, in the playoffs. Turnovers. Turnovers have been a major discussion point in this postseason for Boston. And it was a big time storyline heading into game number three, right? Because we saw, you know, whether it's Jason Tatum, him personally, turning the ball over a ton. He has 83 turnovers coming to last night's game, led the NBA. He is just 
11 turnovers away from shattering LeBron James's turnover record in NBA in the NBA postseason history. LeBron had 94 back in 2018. So Jason Tatum has been a turnover machine this postseason. Jalen Brown's not been much better. Jalen Brown has had some ball handling issues as well. And the Celtics overall collectively as a team have struggled holding on to the ball at times. But we saw last night just 12 turnovers for Boston. And when this team is holding on to the ball, and they're not careless and giving away extra possessions, they are impossible to beat. The numbers bear that out. In this postseason, when the Celtics turn the ball over 15 times or less, 15 times or less, this postseason, they are 14-2, and two, including last night. 14-2. and two. When they turn it over 16 or more times in a postseason game, they are 0-5. They cannot live when they are throwing away offensive possessions and when they are giving teams like the Heat, like the Bucks, and like the Warriors second and third opportunities. Extra offensive possessions because they're carelessness with the ball. Because they're giving away fast break opportunities on a steal. Or just a, a bad pass setting up an odd man rush going the other way. We have seen this Celtics team, when they take care of the ball, they are really, really God, tough. Really, I almost cursed there. Really tough to defend and slow down. You can't do it. They have too many scores. They have too many playmakers. They get into big time trouble when they are giving the ball away, when they are careless. And I thought game two is a perfect example of that. They had 16 turnovers in game number two. Those 16 turnovers in game two led to 33 points off of turnovers for the Warriors in that game. That's a massive advantage for the Warriors. 33 points on just turnovers alone. When they clean it up, they are really tough to guard. We saw it even last night. Jason Tatum, 26 points. Jalen Brown, 27 points. Marcus Smart, 24 points. When they are taking care of the ball, when they are running their offense so the way it should be run, they're too talented. They have too many scores on the court to slow down. So you saw last night again, the only thing that's beating the Celtics are themselves. When they turn the ball over, they can't win and rightfully so. But when they have even just pretty good to solid ball security, when they're not turning the ball over, they're almost unbeatable. 14-2 and now in the postseason with 15 turnovers or less. They had just 12 yesterday in game number three. And just forget about turnovers for a second. I thought the ball movement for Boston was a lot better yesterday than it was especially in game two. I thought in game two a large reason why the Celtics you know, struggled in the first half and then really got obliterated in the third quarter was because they took too many contested shots. Like, I get it. It's easy to say it's a make-or-miss league, right? And that's kind of what the NBA is boiled down to. But also, you got to give yourself a chance here. And I thought Boston in Game 2, it was too much iso ball, too much one-on-one, settling for, you know, fadeaway threes that are contested, too many tough shots that they tried to knock down that just didn't help them on offense. You moved the ball, I thought they got a lot more open looks and a lot more easier shots in game number three compared to game number two. I mean, look, they made 43 baskets yesterday, the Celtics hit from the field. 28 were assisted on. Ball movement was better. The extra pass was setting up some open looks, whether it's down low, that's at the three-point line. I like the way the Celtics were moving the ball all throughout the game on the offensive end. But we talk about the Celtics, right? One of the reasons why they're so tough to defend, and one of the reasons why, as long as they're not beating themselves, why I think they're beating the Warriors pretty easily, is because they are able to dominate the paint. We talked about this team being stronger, being bigger, being more physical. They showed that again yesterday. 
The Celtics have the size advantage. The Celtics have the advantage down low in the paint, and they flex those muscles on Wednesday night. They outscored Golden State 52 to 26 in the paint, doubled them up 52 to 26. And again, it goes back to what I was just talking about before with ball movement. When you're getting that extra pass, when you're when you're sending your teammates up for some good looks, a lot of those are coming at the rim. A lot of those are nice passes that you know that are on the cut, nice passes that are you know guys streaking to the basket. And it gives you better looks down low when you do have the size advantage. Kevon Looney's been a force down low, especially rebound. But you have Robert Williams. You have Jalen Brown, who's a big body. You have Jason Tatum, who is finishing better now at the rim. Marcus Smart can, can get to the hole and, and finish at the rim as well. Like the Celtics have players that Al Horford, that can finish down low, that can feast down low, and we saw it yesterday. Doubled up the Warriors in the paint 52 to 26 points down low. But even more importantly, Boston grabbed 15 offensive rebounds. So again, you're giving yourself second and third opportunities to score if the first one doesn't go in. You out-rebound Golden State by 19 points, and you limit their second-chance opportunities. That's a big key in this game is rebounding. We talked about Robert Williams as being a big key in the series. Why? Well, in part, he has to try to slow down Kevon Looney. Not because Kevon Looney's a big-time scorer. He's not. But Kevon Looney's damage this postseason has been done on the boards and specifically the offensive rebounding glass. He has been dominant. He's gotten 11 rebounds in a game this postseason. He has been tremendous at keeping plays alive for the Warriors in offense and giving them second looks. And guess what? When you give Steph and Clay second looks, more times than not, they're going to hit it. So it's about limiting that Warriors offense, making them one and done when they shoot the ball off a miss. I thought the Celtics did a really good job of that last night. And again, they gave themselves second and third opportunities on offense when they were there because they got 15 offensive rebounds. So they dominated the glass, dominated the scoring down low, and finally used their size to their advantage. So they didn't turn the ball over. They didn't kill themselves yesterday. They are the bigger, faster, stronger team. We saw that yesterday. And this is a team, what I, what I love a lot, that flourishes, flourishes, in the face of adversity. We all know throughout the postseason, you are going to face lumps. You are going to face doubts and criticism, right? It's just natural. Not everyone can play 16 perfect games. You're going to lose in the NBA playoffs at some point. The big question is, how do you respond? And the Celtics have gotten up off the mat every single time this postseason. After last night's win, they are now 7-0 this postseason after a loss. 7-0. They have not lost back-to-back playoff games this season. They have always bounced back after a bad performance. And to their credit, they never panic. Even with a first-time head coach, and I know Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart, they've been around a while, and they've had a, a, they have a ton of playoff experience under their belt, but they still are young, especially Brown and Tatum. Like, Brown's 25, Tatum's 24. So with that said, these are still players that don't panic they don't get too nervous when the big moment comes. They, for whatever reason, it almost feels like they lock in more and they kind of regain their focus after a loss and after a bad performance. And it's not just after a loss, right? It's not like one of those things where they have a great game plan and credit to Emo Doku who always has some sort of adjustment ready for the next game, especially after a loss. But this is a team that doesn't panic and is able to rebound from diversity in the game. We have seen it now twice in three games where the Warriors have went on their run in the third quarter and done what they have done. 
whether it was game one taking a 12-point lead into the fourth quarter, or whether it was even yesterday where the Celtics themselves had a 12-point lead and watch that shrink to at one point have the Warriors take the lead. Right, this was at one point a 12-point game coming out of half, and the Warriors took an 83-82 lead. We know how good this Warriors third quarter, uh, how good they are in the third quarter. But to the Celtics' credit now, two times in three games in the fourth quarter, they have rebounded. We saw that historic 40-16 fourth quarter closeout to go from what was a 12-point deficit to a 12-point win historic in game one for the Celtics. And guess what? What was that called? A fluke. Never going to happen again. One in a million. The Warriors took the foot off the gas. No big deal. That's not going to happen again. Well, guess what happened yesterday? Almost a script was written the same exact way. The only difference was the Warrior, uh, the Celtics were winning in the fourth quarter, not losing by 12. But in the fourth quarter, even late in the third quarter, when the Warriors looked like they took over the game, when the momentum was on their side, when Seth Curry hit a three to put the Warriors up 83-82, it is easy to say, oh boy, here we go again. And start to panic and start to doubt yourself. And instead, after the Warriors went up 83-82, when you have Clay who's playing well, when you have Steph who, who's playing well, when you have you know Draymond Green and Kevon Looney, and you have guys that have a lot of postseason experience, you know how the Celtics responded? They responded by closing out the game on a 34-17 run. They went from up or down by one to winning by 16. Again, it's not just the adversity facing you know the Celtics being able to overcome adversity after a loss. It is in-game now, Two out of the three games in this NBA postseason, they have dominated the fourth quarter. They don't get intimidated by the Warriors. They are the more physical team. They are too tough to defend. They play really good defense. And again, this team has shined in the biggest moments so far in the finals. So if you're the Warriors, it's time to hit the panic button, man. This is no joke. You got your big game two victory at home. You won with a massive third quarter. But so far, outside of the third quarter, in this series, the Celtics have dominated the other nine quarters. They have been the better team for nine of the 12 quarters. And if you're the Warriors, you better start panicking because there's not much you can do that can change this series. The only thing changing this series is the Celtics themselves. If they get in their own way, if they turn the ball over, if their defense has mental lapses, if they are not using their strengths, not using their size to their advantage. The only team beating the Celtics in the finals are the Celtics. When all things are equal here, I don't think the Warriors are beating the Celtics. This team is winning the finals. Now, the game three was the perfect example of that last night. So, I'm curious your thoughts here. Is the only team that's taking on the Celtics themselves? Can the Warriors, are they good enough to beat the Celtics when things are going well for Boston? My answer is no. How about yourself? I'd love to get your thoughts. Facebook. We're out there on Worldwide Sports Right Network. If you want to check us out, we have our own show page. It's new. We're trying to you know, expand it, get a little bit uh, more name recognition out there. So we are on Facebook, Ryan Hickey Show. The Ryan Hickey Show is our, our show page. Every single show is live on there. We're also putting clips after the show to that show page. So if you're on Facebook and you're a fan of the show, number one, thank you. Number two, make sure you check us out, the Ryan Hickey Show on Facebook. Throw us a like there. If you're on Twitter, you could tweet me at Ryan Hickey Show at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter, also on Instagram at Ryan Hickey Show. And on YouTube, we are streaming live at Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, we just kind of hinted on it before. The Warriors are a great third quarter team. And they have been, so far, an awful fourth quarter team. Biggest reason for that? Steph Curry. We'll discuss when we return. You listen to the Ryan Hickey Show 
on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show. Right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So, all right, I think the Celtics are the better team. They, To me, they showed in Game 3. We're talking all things equal. When the Celtics playing their best game versus the Warriors' best game, the Celtics are winning that. That is a matchup that favors Boston big time. And one of the reasons why I say that is because this team has dominated the fourth quarter. We talk about the Warriors' third quarter greatness. We talk about, oh boy, Halftime adjustments. What are you going to do, Ime Udoka? How are you going to prevent the Warriors from going on that classic run that they do? For me, I I said it kind of half-joking but half-serious. If you're Ime Udoka, don't even send the team into the locker room. Keep them on the bench. Forget the orange slices. Forget about watching film. Sit on the bench and run layup lines until halftime's over. you got to do something different to kind of slow down this Warriors third-quarter greatness. But even so, even with the Warriors dominating the third quarter for the, uh, through the first three games... It hasn't mattered in part because the fourth quarter, two out of the three games, Boston has dominated. And one of the biggest reasons for that is because Steph Curry is nowhere to be found in the fourth quarter. Steph Curry is someone who needs to be playing really, really well for the Warriors in order for them to win. And instead, he has been horrific in the most important quarter of the NBA Finals, the fourth quarter. You can look at just the fourth quarter alone as the reason why the Celtics are up right now two games to one. We talk about the greatness of the Warriors. They are plus 35 right now in the third quarter through the first three games. Do you know what they are in the fourth quarter? Their plus minus in the fourth quarter is minus 40. Minus 40 in the fourth quarter. And a big reason for that has been Steph Curry. He's been MIA. He's not played well. Your star, your great player, your future Hall of Famer has struggled mightily. Mightily. We can give credit for the Celtics for making plays and they have. Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart, their defense, they Al Horford in game one. The Celtics have made the plays in the fourth quarter. And for whatever reason, Steph Curry and the Warriors decide, despite being in the finals five times before, despite knowing fourth quarter is where your true money is made, they have been that they have played their worst basketball in the biggest moment so far in the finals. Now you look at Steph Curry specifically. It's really only been two games because he sat out the entirety of the fourth quarter in game two when the Warriors, you know, blew out the uh, the Celtics after that big time third quarter. So in the fourth quarter so far, in the finals, Steph Curry is shooting just 3 of 10 from the field. 0 of 3 from 3, and he's had 6 points. 6 points total in the fourth quarter. He has been a major disappointment this postseason. I get you could say, well, Ryan, he scored 31 points yesterday. Well, Ryan, he scored 21 points in game 1 in the first quarter. Well, Ryan, he scored, what, 28, 29, and now 31 points. He's been fine. It's everyone else. No. And absolutely not. Steph Curry's been a major disappointment so far through these first three games of the postseason. You can have a big first quarter. Congratulations. You know what Steph Curry did after that big first quarter when he had 21 points in game one? He had 13 points the rest of the way. 
13 points the rest of the way, and guess what? They needed a big-time effort from Steph in game number one when that 12-point lead went the other way. And you know what Steph Curry did in game one when that when that lead was slipping and they were just about to go and make a, I don't say a historic loss, but have a really embarrassing loss? Steph Curry was just 2-6. of six. Scored four big-time points in game number one and was a minus 20. His plus-minus in the fourth quarter was minus 20. He's been a defensive liability in the fourth quarter, and he's not been able to make up for it on the offensive end. And we saw it again yesterday. Big-time fourth quarter where the Celtics, or the Warriors, excuse me, late in the third, took a lead. 83-82 on Steph's three-pointer. And guess what? When it comes to crunch time, when it comes to money time, if you will, where championships are won and lost, Steph Curry in the fourth quarter was just 1 of 4 from the field, 0 of 2 from 3, and had two total points. You're not winning the NBA Finals when your all-time best player in Steph Curry is scoring two points in the fourth quarter of game three, four points in the fourth quarter of game number one, and is a combined minus 30. Minus 30. In the fourth quarter alone, so far in the NBA Finals. He's been a big disappointment. A major disappointment. Because so far, and credit the Celtics. We talked about their ability to bounce back and their resiliency um, that they've showed so far through these first three games. That is why it doesn't matter to me that Steph Curry scored 34 points in game one, uh, game number one and scored 31 points yesterday. Like, stat-wise... Sure, it looks nice when Steph Curry, I think the, the lowest point till he had is 29 points. So it's 29, 31, 34. Congratulations. But the key thing is, the war, uh, the Celtics have been able to withstand that. When Steph went off for 21 points in the first quarter, you know what no one was talking about in that first quarter of game one? The Celtics were still in the game. If you just say, oh man, Steph Curry, game one of the finals at home, he scored 21 points in the first quarter. Let me. Just, what do you think the score is? The Warriors are up, what, 15 after the first quarter? Like, that's just fair to think, right? And so they were not. Instead, the Celtics had a halftime lead. Despite the fact that Steph was unconscious in the first quarter. We talked about the greatness of the third quarter from the Warriors. And they are. And Steph, again, even yesterday, had a really good third quarter and helped the, uh, helped the Warriors erase a 12-point halftime deficit. But yet again, what no one wants to talk about is the Celtics are still right there. And when you leave the Celtics hanging around, they have come through and been, you know, they've made the plays. And Steph Curry is not. And when it comes to crunch time so far, it's been Jalen Brown has been a lot better. It's been Jason Tatum, who even in game one, scored zero points in the fourth quarter, but had four assists and was making plays. When he wasn't scoring, he was still setting his team up offensively and the defensive end locking down and playing good defense. Steph Curry's not done that. He's not been making plays. He hasn't been knocking down shots and hasn't been setting his teammates up. He has been a major disappointment so far in this postseason. And he's been one of the biggest reasons why these Celtics right now are up two games to one. That's a big thing to watch here going to game number four. Steph can have a great quarter. He can be unconscious and congratulations. But if you keep putting up these poor fourth quarters like he has so far, the Warriors don't have a chance. And again, it goes back to what I've been saying. When all things are equal here, these Celtics are the way better team. They've been able to withstand a Steph Curry barrage. And they have taken advantage because they have made the plays. And the team that has three finals championships, five finals appearances, has been on the stage a ton, who knows what it takes to get over the hump and win a title, has been the ones to wilter in, or wilt, I should say, 
Wilt. Wilt are making up new words here. Has been the team to wilt in the fourth quarter so far in two out of the first three games. Like, I'm not even going to count game number two. The Celtics won that, and that's part of the plus 40 that they've been in the fourth quarter in these first three games. But let's be honest. Both teams were playing backups for the most part, so I'm not even going to really reference that. Game one and game three. Those have been the, the biggest difference in those two games, the fourth quarter. The Celtics have been great. Steph Curry, especially in the Warriors, have not. We talk about the third quarter. We talk about Steph Curry's first quarter. We can look at the box score and say, oh, wow, you know, he's the one who's, you know, it's not him that's the problem when he's scoring 31 points and he's scoring 34 points. Like, it's everyone else. We can point to Clay Thompson shooting 0 of 100 from three, couldn't hit the broadside of a barn, couldn't hit water from a boat. The first two games of the NBA Finals, even yesterday, he's playing well. Fourth quarter, nowhere to be found. This has been a Warriors team that has shrunk in the fourth quarter. And it goes to a larger point I want to talk about here. Because for me, this finals, this NBA finals is being determined by the role players. It's not the star players that are the ones that are going to win this game. It's the role players. Because so far through three games, they have been the big difference. And they have been the big difference as to why the Celtics are up right now two games to one in this series. Like the three players I think that are determining the NBA Finals, Marcus Smart, Al Horford, Robert Williams. They were the ultimate difference, difference makers in Game 3. And so far through the first three games, they have kind of been the bellwether, if you will, of who is going to win this series. When they play well, the Celtics are winning. When they struggle mightily, they are not winning. The Warriors are winning that. So if you just get even comparable, comparable performances like they had in Game number 3 moving forward, Again, we've been talking about it all, all morning so far. The Celtics are winning this series. You, know, you look at what Marcus Smart did yesterday. I thought he had his best game of the postseason yesterday. Scoring-wise, led it up 24 points, 8-17 shooting, so very efficient. But now you look, too. One thing that's not talked about a ton is Marcus Smart's scoring ability. Again, 24 points yesterday. The Celtics now, this postseason, he has scored 15 or more points in that playoff game nine times this postseason. The Celtics are 7-2. and two. Like, I don't think it's a fluke. Him scoring is important. You don't have to light it up for 24 points every time. But again, even just 15 points a game, I think is important because when he is scoring, when he is making some shots, all of a sudden that stretches the defense out even thinner than they already are. Now, instead of just worrying about Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, which again, so far we have seen those two at different points in the series play really well, but when you are constantly focused on them, when you're constantly worried and switching your defenses onto one of those two guys and putting your primary defenders on Brown and Tatum, now that gives Marcus Smart favorable matchups. And when he's winning those matchups, number one, that's huge for the offense. But number two, then if you start to switch your defense, if you start then to start prioritizing, oh, now we got to worry about Marcus Smart, guess what that does? Opens up better looks for Tatum and Brown. Gives them more favorable matchups and maybe gets Draymond Green away from Brown. Maybe gets Draymond Green away from, or Andrew Wiggins, away from Jason Tatum. Having Marcus Smart score, again, don't have to line it up for 20, 25 points a night. Just 15 points. Some hitting some key shots and relied upon has been the big difference so far from the Celtics. Again, 7-2 and two now Boston is in this postseason where Marcus Smart scores 15 or more points. And not the reason why I thought he had the best game this postseason uh, yesterday wasn't just the fact that he scored 24 points. It was the defensive end as well. Again, he, I thought, is a matchup nightmare for Steph Curry, Jordan Poole, Klay Thompson. He is the defensive player of the year. 
He's a guy who can switch. He's a guy who can guard many different positions. And he is a very good defender. And we saw that last night. Last night, the Warriors on shots that Marcus Smart was defending were 0 of 9 from the field. When Smart was the primary defender, 0 of 6 from 3. He's really damn good defensively. I don't have to tell you that. You know, it takes any uh, anyone to watch an ounce of basketball to, to see that. But again, when you are playing as well as he has on both ends of the floor, a two-way player, that is really, really tough for the Warriors to deal with and overcome. So for me, again, that's one of the reasons why Marcus Smart is kind of the biggest X factor in the series. If he could score and, and make just some open shots or, or convert on some favorable looks when he gets it, this Celtics offense is, is almost unstoppable. And defensively, he is their stopper. Huge impact. He has a huge impact on both sides of the floor. We saw that especially in game number three. But one of the most impressive, right? If you talk about who stood out and kind of, I don't want to say unexpected, but from what we've seen so far this postseason, it's been a lot up and down. Robert Williams was absolutely tremendous yesterday for what he's been able to do. He's been dealing with, you know, that, with that meniscus injury that he hurt at the end of the regular season. And he's come back, and it's interesting because we saw it even with Joel Embiid last year when he had his own meniscus injury. Some games, they're flying around the floor, and it's like you forget there's a knee injury. And other times, they are really hobbling, really looking like they're you know, they're walking and playing on one leg, and it impacts them in a big-time negative way. I thought what Robert Williams did yesterday was really, really impressive, and he was a major force on the defensive end yesterday. 10 rebounds. So again, we talk about limiting Kevon Looney's effectiveness on the glass. Robert Williams, I thought, did a great job yesterday grabbing 10 rebounds, not allowing Kevon Looney to get offensive rebounds, not you know giving the, uh, the Celtics second opportunities on the offensive end of the floor. He had 10 rebounds, four blocks, three steals. He was the ultimate rim protector. He adjusted the way the Warriors kind of attacked the paint. And anytime they tried to test him, he was swatting that away and saying the Matumbo, no, no, no. He made life inside the paint a living hell for the Warriors. Very active on the defensive end of the floor. Very impressed with what Robert Williams did. Now look, the tricky part is especially now between games three yesterday and game four on Friday, very short rest. The only time this series you're going to have just one day off. It's going to be a tough task for Robert Williams. And he even mentioned in the postgame yesterday of bouncing back after the short rest. He needs every single second of time in between games to rest that knee, to ice the knee, to rehab the knee. So I can't really sit here and say he'll be that effective again in game number four. But as long as he's just impacting shots and changing the way the Warriors attack him on uh, uh, when they're on the offensive end of the floor, that's a big-time win for Boston. Really, really impressive game from Robert Williams so far in game number three. And now Horford. Again, we're not asking, you don't need game one Al Horford where he, hit, where he made 26 points and hit six threes. You just need solid contributions from Big Al. Like, you don't, you don't need the 26 points like he had in game one. You also don't need the two points he had in game two. Game three, I thought, was a happy medium and definitely something reasonable to expect going forward. 11 points, efficient on offense, eight rebounds, six assists. Again, just a playmaker all across the floor. When you have... Uh, Al Horford playing the way he does, uh, he did yesterday. When you have Robert Williams impacting the defensive end of the floor in a big-time fashion, and when you have Marcus Smart playing really well on both ends of the floor, that to me is what this series is coming down to. We know Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown are going to be really solid. And Tatum has been a little bit more inefficient to my liking than you would hope so far through these first three games. Jalen Brown had a really good game number uh, three yesterday. 
and really kind of for the first time in a while, put it together for four quarters. We've seen him for one quarter play really well. Uh, game two, he had that big time first quarter and kind of tailed off after that. But Jalen Brown and Tatum, you know, they'll get their points. They'll get to the foul line. They'll make their shots. But for me, this series is coming down to Marcus Smart, Robert Williams, and Al Horford. If you can get contributions like you did from last night, comparable, fair contributions like you did, I think they're winning the series. They're absolutely, to me, winning this series. And so far through three games, you could draw the straight comparison. When that trio plays well, they did in game one and they did in, in game three. The Celtics are 2-0. Oh. When they struggle, like they did in game two, when all three combined to score six points, they're 0-1. for one. We talk about the stars. It is a star-driven league. We talk about Steph and Clay and Tatum and Brown. But this series is coming down to role play. I trust the role players of the Celtics way more than I do the Warriors. And I thought Game 3 was the perfect example of that. Look, even last night, again, we can highlight Steph Curry's fourth quarter inefficiency. And he was very bad in the fourth quarter yet again. But the reality is he scored 31 points. And Klay Thompson had his best game of the finals by far in, 20, in getting 25 points, making five threes. It didn't matter. Two of the best players in the Warriors played really well. Didn't matter. Celtics won. Why? Because their role players are going to be the difference in this series. They are the difference. So I'm curious your thoughts here. Going back to the Steph Curry conversation. How disappointing has Steph Curry's finals been so far? He can light it up. 31 points. 34 points. But so far in the fourth quarter, he has been MIA. He has been a disappearing act. Are you disappointed with what Steph Curry's done so far? Or, you say, you know what, Ryan? Give him some, give him some slack. Criticize Draymond Green for his awful game, which we'll get to in a little bit. Criticize Clay Thompson for so far being in the first two games, of being a bricklayer, if you will. Criticize others but Steph Curry. Love to hear your thoughts on Steph Curry so far, three games in the finals. Facebook Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter at Ryan Hickey Show, and on YouTube, you can comment there as well, Worldwide Sports Radio Network. When we return, earlier this week, Aaron Donald got paid. The retirement rumors are no more. He is returning. He got a fat paycheck in it as he now becomes the highest paid non-quarterback in NFL history. I got a question for you. Is Aaron Donald the best value in the NFL, period? We'll discuss when we return us into the Ryan Hickey Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show. A sad day, or really a sad week, I should say, at the Hickey apartment this week. I officially cut the cord, at least in the interim. Cutting the cord, probably, well, let's be honest here, by the fall, come football time, come college football on Saturday when there's four million different games going on, you have all these screens running, and the NFL on Sundays as well, probably go back to cable, you need all the screens, you need the reliability of the cable box to not kind of uh, always hope that the internet is going to be running smoothly. I don't know about you. I hate the lag. I hate the the 30-second to a minute delay that the stream is on. Uh, if you're on Twitter, if you get alerts to your phone, um, so football will probably be back, uh, hooked up to the cord, if you will. But uh, this week, at least for the summertime, decided to cut the cord. 
And let me tell you, it, it is tough. Even watching last night's game, I, you don't really realize in the moment, or maybe for me, because I've always kind of had cable, um, you're not really used to it, but even going on Twitter during the finals last night, I'm like, wow, a lot of these tweets are firing off. Like as soon as the game goes to commercial, or as soon as like a big shot is made, there's like 10 tweets already. I'm like, wow, how's everyone getting these tweets out so fast? And then I realized, oh yeah, I'm like two minutes behind everyone else. So thankfully, what I will say is it's only been a minute or two delay. And thank God, really, the internet yesterday was fine. There was no, you know, it was not um, distorted. It wasn't graining. Thankfully, there was no pausing or, or buffering. But I will say, when it comes to the finals, when it comes to the Mets, boy, pray for my neighbors, pray for my girlfriend if this internet goes out and the, the streaming goes south. It's going to be a bad bad day for them so officially cut the cord it's really sad day hopefully it's not as bad as i envision it um but i guess if it is you will definitely hear about it that is for sure so let's get into it so aaron donald got paid and he is now the highest paid non-quarterback in nfl history so i want to ask you this question if you look at nfl players like stocks right like their value bang for your buck roi return on your investment is there a better return on your investment in the NFL than Aaron Donald? I would say no. Like, to me, Aaron Donald is the best deal in the NFL. I think he's pound for pound the best football player, football player in the NFL. Now, look, I'm not stupid. I'm not an idiot. I realize quarterback is a hell of a lot more important than defensive tackle. I'm not saying if I had a team tomorrow and I had to choose Patrick Holmes or Aaron Donald, I'm taking Aaron Donald. I'm not. I'm taking, no disrespect to Aaron Donald, but just how games are won these days, I would take the 10th best quarterback right now in the NFL over Aaron Donald if I had the pick right now to you know form a team around. Quarterback is just that much more important. Quarterback has a greater impact on winning compared to, again, even an all-time great defensive end. But if we're just talking football player, is Aaron Donald a better defensive tackle than Patrick Mahomes is a better quarterback? I would say yes. Donald is the better overall player. And I think the value the Rams are getting him at makes him the best deal in all of the NFL. Like when it comes to pure pay for play, right? Let's take a college uh, athletics term that... Everyone in the NCAA hates and thinks are the worst three words in the entire world. Pay for play. But really, what that boils down to is, I'm paying you, I expect you to produce. Is there a player that gives you more bang for your buck than Aaron Donald in the NFL? My answer is absolutely not. Absolutely not. He is by far the best value in the NFL. Like, Look at it. He has been in the league now eight years. He has an eight-year career. Look at what he has done in those eight years so far. He has made the Pro Bowl all eight years. So been one of the best at his position. He has made first team all pro in seven of those eight years. Seven out of eight first team all pro. Meaning he has been the best player at his position for seven of the eight years he has been in the league. Do you know how hard that is to do for context? This is not a, a bash on Patrick Mahomes discussion, but I just want to bring it up because he is kind of the obvious pushback. Everyone say, oh, Patrick Mahomes is way better than Aaron Donald. Patrick Mahomes has been in the NFL for four years. Patrick Mahomes has made the first team all pro team 
once. One time. Think about how hard that is to do. He made it just once. Aaron Donald has made it seven out of eight times, has made the Pro Bowl every single year, three times out of eight years. So almost, almost half of his career, he has won a Defensive Player of the Year award. He was the Defensive Rookie of the Year. And he made the All-Decade team for the, the 2010s, right? 2010 to 2020. The All-Decade team. This guy has given you the absolute production you you know you could ask for and more. He's averaging now $31.6 million per season with this brand new deal. He's getting 65 mil guaranteed through the first three, uh, two years of his career. And then if he decides to return right after 2023 is an option, you can either retire or you can come back for an extra $30 million guaranteed. So he has $95 million guaranteed if he plays for the next three years, averages out to 31.6 mil. There's no better deal. There's no more production you are going to get for $31.6 million a year than what Aaron Down has given you. He has given you more value. He has given you a better return than even what Patrick Holmes has given the Chiefs at $45 million a year. Again, we're not talking about winning. We are just talking about performance. Being the best at your job. If you're comparing, right? Am I, you know... Am I a better radio, like if we're comparing me and you, let's say you're just an insurance salesman. Well, guess what? If we're comparing insurance salesman, you're a hell of a lot better insurance salesman than I am because I don't do insurance. And if we're doing radio, I'm probably a better radio host than you are because you don't do radio. So to compare Aaron Donald to Patrick Holmes, Patrick Holmes is not a defensive tackle and obviously Aaron Donald's not a quarterback. But we were talking just actual performance, not impact on winning, not who'd you rather have. Everyone is obviously taking the quarterback. But let's give Aaron Donald his respect for being a great football player. I think he's the best football player in the NFL. I think what he does at defensive tackle is better and more impressive than what Patrick Holmes, Tom Brady, Aaron Rodgers do at their respective positions. So when you look, for me, I think Aaron Donald's the best deal in the NFL. What he has been able to show you, what he has been able to consistently put on tape, that's the biggest thing. It's the consistent greatness that is just mind-blowing. Again, eight-time Pro Bowler in eight years. Seven-time first-team All-Pro. He has basically, again, dominated since snap one of his NFL career. He's been nothing but great. Three-time Defensive Player of the Year award in eight years. There's no more player that is more productive than that. Aaron Donald, best deal in the NFL. Speaking, though, of his future, because there's also another part to this discussion of how much longer is he going to play. I'll be honest. I bought the discussion. I bought the, I don't say rumors, but him throwing it out there that he would retire this season. If the deal wasn't right, if the Rams didn't pony up the the extra money that they did to give him now, you know, $31.5 million a season on average, they didn't do that. I do believe Aaron Donald would have retired. Because he has mentioned now many times his main goal, his main drive is to win. He got a Super Bowl. And so if he retired today, if the Rams didn't give him a deal for whatever reason, I do think he would have retired. I don't want to say what else they have to play for, but he's been a guy that's dominated, literally dominated. He's already, even just in a short sample size, been one of the best defensive players and one of the best overall players in NFL history. 
He has spoken about, before he came to the league, his goal is to play eight years and then get out. Football is a very violent, physical, tough position to play, especially defensive tackle, where you're getting hit, pushed around, jostled, pancaked. Well, mostly he's doing the pancaking, but you're getting you know, chipped, double-teamed every single play. It's physical. It's grueling. Even for a guy who's an Adonis, a freak, the epitome of male fitness, Aaron Donald, the only guy that's 260 pounds of the six-pack, the guy's traps, if you've seen a picture of Aaron Donald's shirtless, his traps are bigger than like anyone's biceps. His arm, his arms, his shoulders are bigger than my sh- entire body. But it's a physical tough sport. I do believe the retirement talk. But now with that said, now that he's at least committed for the next two years, possibly three, I think there's a chance he lives out the three years. I do. Because Aaron Donald now is motivated by winning. He showed you and he told you he'll come back. So now if you look at this Rams window, they do have like a three-year window, right? We'll say with all the big-time contracts they've given out, it kind of all matches up to another three-year window where they have to compete at a very high level. Matthew Stafford's a little bit older, so you think his peak play will be another few years. So I'll say three more years the Rams have, three to four years of a really solid window of winning as many Super Bowls as they can in that time. I think Aaron Donald's going to stay. I think he's going to take advantage. He's going to get paid. And try to compete to, I mean, hell, if you want to get nuts, win four rings. I don't think he's one of those guys that will retire if he wins a Super Bowl this year. Maybe I'm wrong. And again, I believe the retirement talk. So maybe when you're that close already, before you know this brand new deal comes back, maybe you already have kind of one foot out the door. But no extra years are added. No years were voided. They did include, the Rams did an, you know, a, uh, an out for retirement after 2023. So maybe that should be a sign that he's not going to live out the next three years of the contract. But I'm taking the bait. I think he's going to play the next three years. I think the Rams get one more Super Bowl. And Aaron Donald is going to go down as one of the best, if not the best player, uh, defensive player in NFL history. When it comes to value, at $31.5 million a season, to me, There's no better value than what Aaron Donald brings to the NFL with what his production has made and what he's getting paid. Speaking of production, speaking of getting paid, boy, Baker Mayfield's future has never been more in question than it is right now. Look, Deshaun Watson, it's getting ugly. And when we come back here, we'll discuss what a possible suspension could look like. I have an idea of what I think it's going to be. Tell you what that is. And why, if you're the Browns, there's no way. There's no way right now you can trade Baker Mayfield. We'll discuss why that is when we return us into the Reineke Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back in to the Ryan Hickey Show. As always, the 10 o'clock a.m. Eastern hour is sponsored by LC Design. Charcuterie boards are perfect for all occasions, especially now for a beautiful summer picnic. So make sure you check out lcdesignsnyc.com. lcdesignsnyc.com to make that picnic, make that hangout with your friends in the backyard a little bit more enjoyable and a little bit more tasty. So... What are the chances here that Baker Mayfield's playing for the Browns in 2022? I think high. Like at this point, 
I'll be honest. I have had to change my stance on Baker Mayfield and the Browns. I have been advocating for the last two months. The Browns just cut Baker Mayfield. Get it over with. Move on. And enjoy life with your brand new quarterback and Sean Watson. But I have changed my opinion. There's no way right now the Browns can trade Baker Mayfield. Because the more that's revealed about Deshaun Watson, the more I think he's going to be suspended for the entire year. And if that's the case, you got to play Baker Mayfield this season. And you know what? Call me crazy. I can see I'm in the minority on this already. I think Baker would play. I do think Baker Mayfield would suit up for the Browns this season, knowing a full season suspension is in effect for Deshaun Watson, and give it, you know, revive his career. So this, to me, first of all, the only way Baker is playing for the Browns this season is if Deshaun Watson is suspended for the entire year. If it's a six-game suspension, eight-game, 10-game, 15-game, even 16-game suspension, where he's eligible to play you know, the 17th game, to me, there's no chance Baker's playing. No chance. The only way he's playing, if it's a full season-long suspension, and he knows it is his team this season no matter what. And you know what? I'll be honest. Earlier this year, I didn't think that was a possibility, a full-year suspension. But the more that comes out, the more details that are revealed, the more reporting that goes on with this story, the more I think Watson's going to be done for a full year. Like, this week, we had the 24th lawsuit, civil lawsuit filed against Deshaun Watson. That is one that's reportedly could take the league and the Browns by surprise. Now, there's some question about how forthcoming Deshaun Watson was about this specific allegation, but there's a chance the Browns in the league did not see this one coming. Then you have, so you go from the 24th lawsuit filed to then a great reporting job from the New York Times by Jenny Varentis, who reported that Deshaun Watson used 66 different massage therapists in 17 months. Is that a crime? No. But when you look at this story overall, the creepy nature of it, the questionable motives of Deshaun Watson using all of these different massage therapists, if you're the NFL, I think it's, I know this is tricky to say, because anytime you talk about bad luck, I know the NFL doesn't care about bad luck, so they just do what they want to do and what's good for business, whether people like it or not. I just can't see how the NFL can justify anything right now short of a season-long suspension. Unless it comes out tomorrow, he is cleared, this is all one massive setup, he's being framed. I don't see how the NFL can justify anything right now less than a one-year suspension because there's too many factors that are working against them having a smaller suspension levy. Right, you look at it, the number of women. We have 24 now women suing Deshaun Watson civilly. We have seen, if we look at uh, previous precedents, guys like Ezekiel Elliott, allegedly, and was found later to be not guilty, grope a woman, and if you, there's a video out there where he took a woman's shirt down in public. He was suspended six games for allegedly groping one woman and taking one woman's top off. Now, one woman is too many, don't get me wrong, but if you're going to give Ezekiel Elliott six games for one woman, you have now 24 different women accusing Deshaun Watson of some sort of sexual assault or some sort of violation that went on. To me, you can't you know, suspend one player six games for one woman coming forward and then have 24 active cases right now. It's like, eh, six games, eight games, we'll be fine. So you have the number continuing to grow, mind you, by the week of civil suits going against Deshaun Watson. You have Deshaun Watson's lawyer, his own lawyer, and Rusty Harden going on Sports Radio 610, an Odyssey station, mind you, and talking about happy endings. 
how they are legal. Well, if you are Roger Goodell, you got to be sitting there and saying, what the hell is this guy doing? He's only making it worse for his client. So you have the number growing. You have Deshaun Watson's lawyer talking about happy endings on, on radio in Houston. You have cases still filing. Like, we have no idea. There's 24 now. The latest one just came in this week. Could five more come in tomorrow? Could more come in? Like, if you're the NFL, I don't think that's a very good look. If you suspend Deshaun Watson six games and all of a sudden, next thing you know, more cases start filing in. We've seen the NFL now get burned multiple times by leaving a suspension, then having more evidence come out, and then having them look horrible. Ray Rice suspended two games. All of a sudden, the video of what he did to his fiance in the elevator comes out. What happens? He's ever been back in the league. Josh Brown, the Giants kicker, was supposed to be suspended one game for just the horrible abuse that he did to his wife. Well, guess what? Dyers came out. She started talking. Next thing you know, Josh Brown never back in the NFL. The NFL has had situations where they have come out too early and levied punishment before everything is closed, for you know all the details are revealed, and they've had a really, really, really bad look. That, to me, is a factor as well. And say you know, whether you want to believe it or not, this is absolutely the case. Major League Baseball suspended Trevor Bauer for two years. Two years for sexual misconduct where he was found not guilty. Or he wasn't charged, I should say, is, is what I should word it. Where there was actions that he did that a court did not find him guilty, but MLB still said, you're suspended for two years. I think it's a bad look, and the NFL can't justify suspending Deshaun Watson for six, eight, ten games when when Trevor Bauer is out of here. I know it's not exactly an apples apples case, but he's gone for two years. And also, whether the league wants to admit this or not, everyone in the NFL is pissed off at the Browns in part because they gave Deshaun Watson a $230 million contract. Now, mostly the people that are upset are the owners because the owners realize that's a brand new precedent now that they're going to have to up the ante when it comes to paying quarterbacks, and that just kind of reset the quarterback market. We give Deshaun Watson with all those questions around him, $230 million guaranteed. So I get 30, we won't count the Packers because they're, you know, fan-owned, if you will, but 30 out of the 32 owners are pissed at the Browns and Jimmy Haslam for giving the contract that he did. So you don't think they're lobbying Roger Goodell to lay the hammer down on Cleveland? You don't think they're back-channeling and trying to pressure Roger Goodell, who, mind you, Works for the owners. Roger Dell works for the owners. He is not the ultimate, you know, the ultimate, even though he is, decision maker will say, he still is influenced by his bosses. He has 32 bosses. He has to report to make them happy. So if 30, and we'll count the Packers in this, so if 31 are pressuring and lobbying Roger Goodell to levy and drop the hammer, I think he would. So for me, all of this adds up so what I think is going to be a 17-game suspension. And if that's going to be the case, I don't see why the Browns and Baker Mayfield don't make up. Maybe I'm just being delusional and unrealistic, but I refuse to believe that Baker Mayfield is going to let his ego, let his pride get in the way of what is a massive career opportunity. Look where Baker is right now. His stock as an NFL quarterback could not be any lower. He had a horrific 2021 season. Whether you want to blame it on the shoulder or not, the fact is it was extremely disappointing. The Browns had very high hopes and borderline Super Bowl expectations going into the 2021 season and missed the playoffs outright. Figured out not making the Super Bowl. They didn't even make the playoffs. They had a horrific year. 
And now, coming off that season, you have a team that is desperate for a quarterback like the Carolina Panthers. Right now, they are choosing between uh, Sam Darnold and Matt Corral, or the Seahawks, who their quarterback room right now is filled up with Drew Locke and Geno Smith. You have those two teams specifically saying, ah, we're good. Unless you basically give it to give Baker Mayfield to us for free, we're not going to take Baker Mayfield. Two teams that are desperate for quarterback play are passing on Baker Mayfield unless it's, you know, you're getting pennies on the dollar. His stock could not be any lower. And guess what? Baker Mayfield, his interest in the league is not going up if he doesn't play this year. If he sits out, the Browns don't trade him, and he sits out the entire 2022 season. His stock is not going up. He's going to be a free agent next year, and no team is going to be busting down the door to sign Baker Mayfield. So I don't think he has a choice. I think he has to play for the Browns. If Deshaun Watson is suspended for an entire season, he can't afford to sit out. And I don't think Baker Mayfield would sit out. Like, if you think about it, Baker Mayfield's main goal is to what? Become a franchise quarterback. He wants to show, I can be the guy. He has used that chip on his shoulder to really fuel his entire career. I get he's never going to be the guy in Cleveland, but if you go play for the Browns this year, you have a successful season. You look like more like 2020 Baker Mayfield where you got to the playoffs. You won a playoff game on the road in Pittsburgh. You are getting paid. You are having teams now, you know, throw different offers at you and you are having multiple suitors come your way to come bring you in. You will become a franchise quarterback and get an offer to be a quarterback and have real Super Bowl expectations if you play this year and you play well for Cleveland. If you go to Seattle, if you go to Carolina, does anyone really think Baker Mayfield is showing he will be a franchise quarterback this year in either Carolina, where the head coach is on the hot seat, their offensive line is very shaky, and their best player, Chris McCaffrey, can't stay on the field, or if you're Pete Cowell, he goes to Seattle, that team is a total mess. They just drove, they drove out Russell Wilson out of town because they, they could not... Uh, care about the offense any less than what Pete Carroll does. He's outdated. The offensive line stinks. Outside of DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett, there's no real weapons on offense. You really think if you're Baker Mayfield, you are now going to revive your career and show you're a franchise quarterback in Seattle? You're not. There's only one option for you to get your career back on track. There's only one option for you to become a franchise quarterback yet again in the NFL, and that is playing this year in Cleveland with the team that you hate. And for whatever reason, again, I think Baker Mayfield is not stupid enough. You can call him what you will. He is. He has maturity issues, yes. He needs some humility, absolutely. I don't think he's dumb enough. I don't think he would really spit on the opportunity to yet again show the NFL what he's got by letting his pride get in the way, by letting his ego of the Browns uh, basically leaving him at the altar and going instead to pursue Deshaun Watson, I don't think he would let those bad feelings ruin what is a massive opportunity for his career. I think the answer is too obvious. The answer is too obvious for Baker. This is by far the best situation for him to succeed. And I, I just can't buy in that a professional with your career on the line is going to allow ego or hurt feelings to impact his future. But for whatever reason, I'm in the minority. I got, 
are you are you with me? Is anyone with me here? Could anyone see a situation where Baker Mayfield's playing for the Browns in 2022? I just laid out to you why I think absolutely the answer is yes. But again, I feel like I'm in the minority. And a great example of this why is I want to play something from Jonathan Jones. Congratulations to Jonathan Jones. Just announced he's the brand new CBS Sports NFL Insider. He's a guy who knows his stuff. He was on yesterday on Maggie Perloff and CBS Sports Radio. They asked, Maggie Perloff asked, is there any chance Baker Mayfield, if Deshaun Watson suspended for a very long time, if he could play for the Browns this season? Here is what Jonathan Jones had to say. I think the ship has totally sailed on that because I also think that Baker Mayfield has an ounce of self-respect. So, you know, he, he's not – why would he put himself in, in that position? He's already – he already feels wronged by the team, and, and reasonable people can disagree about that, but he feels that way, and he feels justified in that. And so it can't be, oh, now you want me because your starting quarterback to whom you gave nearly a, a quarter billion dollars in guaranteed money may not be able to play for you for an extended period of time. And, and I'll just say this, Maggie, I, I understand based off of the fantastic and incredible reporting that Jenny Brentis uh, did at the New York Times that just came out yesterday that a lot of folks think that this suspension may be even longer than maybe what they thought before. I'll just say I'm not convinced that Deshaun Watson's going to be out for a year or even out for more than half of a season. If I had to peg it right now, I'd say somewhere between six and eight games with an appeal potentially taking it down from there. So, you know, the Browns knew that going in, signed him to the deal knowing a suspension was possible. So I'm not sure that this really changes the math for them. Okay, so two things there. If Jonathan Jones is right and the suspension is less than a year, then would I just disregard everything I just said? I personally still think it's going to be a year. I don't think that um, that will be at you know six, eight games, and Jonathan Jones maybe seeing even less. But hey, if if he's right, then disregard everything I'm saying. There's no shot Baker Mayfield plays. But if I'm right, Deshaun Watson suspended for a year. Like I get what what Deshaun uh, what Jonathan Jones is saying that you know Baker Mayfield has an ounce of self respect. But let's again not forget his career is on the line. If he does not play this year, he's a free agent. And guess what? There's not many teams banging down Baker Mayfield's door to come play for uh, their team. And guess what? If there are, it's teams that are bad. It's teams that are in a desperate situation to win. If he goes and plays this year in Cleveland, and again, plays well, gets the Browns to the playoffs, maybe wins a playoff game like he did in 2020, do you know how many teams are going to be interested in getting Baker Mayfield on their team? Do you know how many teams with playoff and Super Bowl aspirations will make a play in order to get Baker Mayfield? A lot. And his payday is only going to go up. Like, if he truly doesn't play this year, if he sits out, or if he goes to Carolina, goes to Seattle, and plays how we think he's going to play at those two positions that right now, to me, don't set him up well for success, he's getting, what, a one-year flyer contract next year? Maybe a two-year, like Mitch Trubisky, low-risk low uh, maybe high-reward situation where you outplay your contract, he's not getting a big deal, and he's not getting the belief he's looking for from a team. He's not getting the conviction that he wants from a team uh, to show him that they believe he's the guy. Baker, I think more than anything else, wants to show he could be a successful franchise quarterback in the NFL. The best way to do that is by playing for the Browns this season. Sean Watson is suspended for an entire year. You have a great O-line in front of you. You have two really good running backs in Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt. You have a receiver core that's getting better and adding Mark Cooper. You have solid tight ends. You have a system you have played under and are familiar with. Baker Mayfield's best chance for success for his career moving forward 
is by playing in Cleveland in 2022. It's not sitting out this year. It's not playing for Carolina. It's not playing for Seattle. And again, I refuse to believe he is going to let his own hurt feelings, his own ego, get in the way of what is a major career opportunity. I think it's hyperbole to say his career is on the line. This season, I think, could go one or two ways for Baker, and that really changes the entire trajectory of his career. If he plays in Cleveland, he shows some humility. He shows some maturity in not allowing some hurt feelings to get in the way of ultimate team success and plays this year despite the fact that the Browns went and traded for Deshaun Watson. And he plays well. Teams are going to take notice. And I think on the flip side, if he doesn't play, if he sits out and lets Jacoby Brissett or Joshua Dobbs get most of the reps and most of the starts if Deshaun Watson is suspended to you, he's sitting on the sideline, not playing, then I think, again, that is a really, really, really bad look for Baker Mayfield. And it's not going to have any teams wanting to sign him next year and beyond. He wants to have teams believe in him. The only way to do that, I think, is by playing well. And the best chance for you to play well this season is in Cleveland with the Browns. I get they scorned you. I get you feel disrespected by them and feel like they stabbed you in the back. But when it comes to the end of the day, your best chance of success is with the team that you're currently on right now in Cleveland with the Browns. Is anyone with me here? Is anyone believing Baker Mayfield could play for the Browns this season? Love to hear your thoughts on Facebook, Worldwide Sports Network, Twitter, WWSRRun underscore radio, at Ryan Hickey Show on Twitter as well. Look at your thoughts and when we return. Draymond Green, is he his own worst enemy? I thought Game 3 showed that when we return. We'll get to that when we uh, when we do return, as I just said. So to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. And welcome back into the Ryan Hickey Show with you right here, Rules, on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. So we'll get to the Draymond Green poor game three a little bit later on, but I want to react to some breaking news that just came down in the world of golf. Obviously, uh, the Live Golf uh, Invitational has gotten underway. The first tournament is this weekend. There's been a lot of criticism. There's been a lot of uh, discussion and attention towards that new golf tournament that is backed by the Saudi Arabians. And now we have finally learned what the PGA is going to do. They have just released a statement uh, about a few minutes ago that now has announced they are suspending the 17 players that are playing in this invitational, this brand new Live Golf Invitational that kicks off this weekend in London. They are suspending them from all different events on the PGA Tour. So that's including guys like Phil Mickelson, Sergio Garcia, Dustin Johnson, Kevin Na, Graham McDowell, Ricky Fowler, any player, whether they've resigned from the tour or not, have been suspended from the PJ Tour indefinitely. No President's Cup, no Ryder Cup, and now at least Jay Monahan, the uh, the PJ Tour commissioner, just put this statement out a few minutes ago, basically saying that any kind of tour that's sanctioned by the PGA, uh, these guys cannot play on. Let me ask this, what is the actual impact of this suspension? I'll be honest, I don't think it's any. I don't think there's really any impact of the PGA Tour suspending these players that have left already because let's call for what it is. 
The biggest events that they're going to play in are the majors. And guess what? The PJ Tour doesn't run the majors. So the PJ Tour can suspend them from the Corn Ferry, from the Senior Tour, from the Canada Tour, from the Champions Tour. Great. But if Phil Mickelson and Dustin Johnson want to play in the U.S. Open, which they both said they're going to play in, and they want to play next week, they are going to play. Because the PJ Tour does not have control of the four major events. So that's really us as fans, right? Most of us casual golf fans that watch the majors, watch maybe the Ryder Cup or the President's Cup at the end and watch a few of the big tournaments, we are watching to see those big-time golfers play in those major events. And they are going to be there. They are going to be there. So I don't really see this being a major sort of impact or even like being a uh, dissuader, if you will, of guys leaving the PJ Tour to go to live. Now, look, we've seen guys like Rory, uh, Spieth, Justin Thomas, like plenty of successful young golfers that have a ton of money are still staying in the PJ Tour and don't like that guys like Dustin Johnson and Phil Mickelson broke away. You can do what you want. But I don't think the suspension now and being removed from the PJ Tour is going to give them any pause on making a jump if and when they decide that the Live Golf Invitational, the Live Golf Tour is for them. So the suspension sounds nice. Oh, 17 players suspended indefinitely. Uh, from the PJ Tour, and any player that decides to go and play in a live event will be suspended from the PJ Tour as well. I just think, to me, it sounds better, and it sounds like a more impactful than it really is. It really doesn't have an impact, to me, on golf. Because they're going to play in the majors, and if they're playing in the majors, who really cares? Right? Like, Phil Mickelson and DJ are going to be there at the US Open next week. Does that really, you know, is their suspension of the PJ Tour then really going to impact them that much? They're already getting, you know, nine-figure deals from uh, from Live Golf. If they could play in the majors, that to me would be the only way that you could give them pause while joining is if you say you cannot do any, any events, including the majors. But the PJ Tour doesn't sanction the majors. So you can't suspend players from majors where you don't control them. So the statement sounds strong. PJ Tour suspends 17 players. Phil Mickelson suspended from the PJ Tour indefinitely. I think it's more hot air. I think it's more hotline uh, headlines than anything actually substantial because, again, they're getting a ton of money. And the events we watch, the big time, you know, events that we want to see these guys at, they will be at. They'll be at the Masters. They'll be at the U.S. Open. They'll be at the Open. They'll be at the PJ Championship. They'll be. They're at the big-time majors we want to watch. The Ryder Cup, sure, it stinks. No President's Cup, okay, that, that's a bummer as well. But getting suspended from the PJ Tour when you already made the jump, to me, has no impact, nor do I think will it serve as a, a reason not to join Live if you are a golfer that's on the edge. If you're Bryson DeChambeau and you're like, oh, you just joined, but you hear the suspension's coming, I don't think that's giving you pause to make the jump. I don't. Now, the other thing that's interesting to me that, again, undermines the, the PJ Tour also is indefinitely. That word indefinitely. They are suspended indefinitely is what the PJ Tour said. So there's a, I mean, realistically a chance, well, Phil Mickelson, this, this live golf fizzles out. DJ uh, Justin Johnson doesn't like it. Let's say it's going strong. He doesn't like the format. He doesn't like the way it's played. He misses the PJ Tour. For whatever reason, let's just say, he decides, you know what, I want to come back. Do we really think, do we really think the PJ Tour is going to say, ah, eh, we're good. You're not coming back. That suspension is not being lifted. I think they're, they're going to let him back in. The indefinitely gives, kind of leaves the door open for them to welcome them back in. Sure, maybe it's a little bit of suspension. Maybe there's a fine they got to pay, or maybe there's some, you know, PR 
stunt they got to go through to, to claim their apology, whatever. But the indefinitely, to me, leaves the door open for their return, which again kind of hurts and undermines this exact suspension that was levied by the PJ Tour. So when you see the PJ Tour moments ago, finally kind of gives their answer on how they're going to um, respond to golfers leaving their tour to go play for Live Golf, I don't really think it has any impact, to be honest. It's not, to me, changing players' decisions and changing their minds of whether they should join or not, because in reality, they're getting paid a lot more money than they would on the PJ Tour, and and you could still play in the majors. So you kind of have it the best of both worlds. You make a ton of money, and then you also get to play in the big-time majors where we're all watching and uh, where all the purses and all the winnings are still really big. So getting suspended from the PJ Tour, I hate to say because I like the PJ Tour, and I want to see a lot of these golfers playing in you know leagues and playing in tournaments around my house and around your house. But I don't think the suspension has really any sort of impact, to be honest, going forward on golf and changing the minds and giving golfers pause about leaving the PJ Tour to go play elsewhere. Still playing the majors. Anyway, by the way, the indefinitely tag, for me, again, still leaves the door open for them to come back. It's just, you know, whatever you got to do, whatever kind of penance you have to make in order to get back on the tour. I would be shocked if, again, Dustin Johnson in a few months from now says, I don't really like this, I'm going to go back. And the PJ Tour says no. So, Jay Monahan, you could try to sound strong. I get you want to put on a, a strong front and send a, a, a really tough message to the golf world, to the fans everywhere that this is not going to be tolerated. I just think right now your kind of hands are tied because you don't sanction the majors, and that would be the ultimate punishment. The ultimate punishment would, I think, be preventing them from playing from the majors. Not happening. You know, without, with that not happening, I don't think there's really a lot of leverage the PJ Tour has in trying to prevent golfers from going to live golf. So let's go back to Game 3 of the NBA Finals yesterday. Draymond Green, I thought, was his own worst enemy in game number three. We've talked about before about the Celtics kind of shooting themselves on the foot. I think the only team that could beat the Celtics right now in the finals is the Celtics. I think Draymond Green kind of was the only player that can kind of get in his own head and slow the Warriors down. We saw that in game three. He could deny it. I thought the crowd got in his head. I thought his own words got in his head. Let's go back to game two, right? After game two where we know there was Draymond Green kind of took that game over. He was physical. He was in the Celtics' heads right away. He was vocal. He was barking. He picked up a tech early on. Almost received a double tech after his uh, little incident, or kerfuffle, if you will, with Jalen Brown. And after that, after that review, which Draymond Green was not given a second tech and not ejected, after the game, he was talking about how he gets preferential treatment from the refs because he's earned that right to kind of have a little more rope than maybe other players in the NBA. And that comment has been discussed, has been talked about, has been highlighted for the last 14 hours or so heading into game number three. And I really do think when you watch how Draymond Green played in game three, to me, he was playing like someone who was almost trying to do the opposite. Like it was so hyped up going into game three. Oh, how is Draymond going to react to the crowd? Oh man, Draymond versus the crowd. Oh man, the rest versus Draymond. This is going to be a, this is going to be even more entertaining than the game itself. But guess what? Draymond in Game 3 was less aggressive. He wasn't the normal antagonizer that we've seen throughout his career and even we saw in Game Number 2. To me, you know what I felt like? Watching Draymond yesterday, it almost felt like because the storyline was so focused on Draymond Green versus the refs, Draymond Green versus the crowd, that it felt like he almost he tried to tone it down and play it cool because everyone expected him to go nuts and be super emotional and be basically out of control like from the jump. 
that he, I thought, tried to almost play it overly too cool and that got him out of his element. And that, in turn, got the Warriors out of their element. Like, this team... Let's, Draymond Green is the heartbeat and the soul of this team. Steph is the Steph is the talent. He's the face of it. Klay Thompson is, is his partner. It's Batman and Robin, if you will, right? Those are the two guys when we talk about, oh, man, most important to the Warriors. Talent-wise, those are the two guys you write off easily. And then when Kevin Durant was there, obviously he's in that conversation as well. But Draymond Green, throughout his entire run here in Golden State, he has been kind of the engine of for this team. He has set the tone. He is their emotional leader. He is the catalyst, if you will, that lights a fire under the squad. And we saw yesterday when he's less aggressive, when he's not chirping, when he's not getting the rest faces, when he's not getting it in other players' faces, and when he's just not asserting himself, this team kind of almost takes a step back as well. Like, you look at the first quarter, this team was lethargic to start the game. I thought they were very flat. And that in large part because Draymond Green was not his normal self. He didn't have that same energy that he had in Game 2. And so you look, that first quarter, the Celtics got off to a hot start. They're up 33-22 right away. The Garden's rocking. And throughout the entirety of the game, you never really felt Draymond Green have any sort of impact at all. I mean, this is a guy who Charles Barkley famously coined as quadruple single for, you know, getting single digit in points, rebounds, assists. I mean, he... His impact is not really felt in the statue as much as it is in the game. But when you look at the stats from yesterday, he had more fouls than he had points, rebounds, and assists. That is not how Draymond Green has his impact on the game. That is not what ma- that is not what makes him successful. Like, I know the stats sometimes don't bear it out, but he truly does and does act almost like a quarterback of the offense at times. He does. You know, point out, he gets, especially on a defensive rebound, gets the fast break going. He's great in leading the Warriors on an odd man rush. He'll get players situated. He'll make one extra pass that's always nice, pocket pass, or, you know, down the lane, out to the wing. He has, you know, done a really good job of kind of running this offense and getting everyone situated. He has really good ball skills. He's good in traffic. Like, he is just someone that underratedly, I think, doesn't get sometimes the respect he deserves on the offensive end of the floor because he doesn't score. He's a terrible scorer. You don't want him scoring. He only took four shots yesterday. That's a godsend. You don't want him taking 12 shots like he did in game number one. That's for damn sure. But the concerning part is he only has three assists, only four rebounds. He's not asserting himself on the glass. He's not getting himself involved in the offense and finding the extra pass to get his teammates better looks. I thought he was overall less aggressive and less impactful in part because I think he was... Worried about the crowd. And they, I do think he was worried about his own comments. He'll say no. He'll say he was soft. He'll play the tough guy act of, I'm not worried about what I said. I know what I said. It's true. Blah, 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 blah. His play, to me, reflected like someone who was a little concerned that the spotlight was going to be on him and that he would not get away and not have the leeway he has had in the previous series, especially in game number two. But the lack of aggressiveness has a major impact on the entire Warriors team. It's a, it does them a disservice when Draymond is not Draymond. And I think, to me, he was his own worst enemy in game number three, and that is a guy to look for more than anyone else starting game number four. Sure, you want to worry about Steph and, and you know, uh, still playing as you know, still playing well. Clay, you want to see if he could build off of game number three. Andrew Wiggins maybe take a step forward in the offensive end. Jordan Poole have a bigger impact in scoring. The guy to watch 
in game number four tomorrow night is going to be Draymond Green. What energy does he possess? How does he interact with the fans? Has he interact with the Celtics? Does he try to get back to game number two where he's physical, where he was assertive, where he was boisterous? That is what makes this Celtics team, uh, what makes this Warriors team, excuse me, at their best when Draymond is doing Draymond-like things. When he's calm, when he's not as much of an agitator, this team does, you know, reflect that and their energy is less and they just look less focused and less induced. That's what I thought we saw, Eric, especially early on in game number three yesterday. Draymond absolutely has to be better. And I thought he was his own worst enemy yesterday. So when we return here on the Ryan Q Show, let's finish it out by still continuing to talk about game number three. I thought game three showed you one thing. And it's that one thing is a big reason why the Warriors should hit the panic button. We'll discuss that when we return. So to the Ryan Q Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Welcome back to the Ryan Hickey Show, right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. All right, we're having some technical difficulties, but welcome back. Ryan Hickey Show with you right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Look, if you're a Warriors fan, if you're a Warriors player... It's time to hit the panic button. It is time to be smashing that button. It is time to be very concerned. Because what you saw last night from Golden State is, I think, shows you you are in big, big, big trouble. So the only team that's beaten the Celtics in the finals are the Celtics. They're better than the Warriors. When the Celtics are playing their game compared to the Warriors playing their game, Boston is winning that matchup. The only thing that is going to beat the Celtics are themselves. The turnovers, the lack of ball movement, some bad defense. As long as you clean those up, and we saw that in Game 3 so far, do that very nicely. That's a team that the Warriors, to me, when they are on their A game, cannot beat. This is one of the rare instances in this Warriors dynasty that's continued where they are not the better team. And as long as Boston could keep it clean, which again, I know has been a little bit of an issue. But as long as they could keep it clean, the Warriors are not beating them. And I thought game three showed that exact reason why. The Warriors played well, by the way. The Celtics won by 16. But I thought the Warriors played a pretty good game. Steph at 31, Clay at 25. You look at the shooting numbers as a team. They're basically pretty similar. Like the, the Warriors had a better three-point field goal percentage. They had two more threes made than the Celtics. But for the most part, shooting percentage, you know, three-point field goal percentage, it's all basically kind of the same. But the difference was, was that the reason why the Celtics won by 16, they are flying out the better team. They are bigger, faster, more athletic, tougher team. And when they don't hurt themselves with stupid mistakes... They are winning the finals. We saw it last night. Turnovers were what? Turnovers were the biggest, uh, one of the biggest areas of focus in this game. Why? Because the Celtics turned the ball over a hell of a lot. It's not just the Warriors defense forcing them into these turnovers. That's one thing. That would be a bigger storyline if that was the case. But the reality is it doesn't matter who the Celtics are playing. The Nets, the Bucks, the Heat, the Warriors. They turned the ball over a ton. But last night they took care of the ball. Just 12 turnovers. And when they take care of the ball, they're unstoppable. 
when the Celtics have 15 or less turnovers in the game, they are 14-2. 14-2 in this postseason when they have 15 or less turnovers. When they have 16 or more, 0-5. I mean, it doesn't get more clear-cut than that. When the Celtics take care of the basketball, they are unbeatable. And I don't think the Warriors can beat the Celtics if the Celtics are playing clean, crisp basketball. One of the biggest keys in Game 2, sure, was the third quarter, but we look at the turnovers. 16 turnovers for Boston in Game 2. That led to 33, 33 points off of turnovers for Golden State. That's the game right there. When you give that many freebies to the Warriors, whether it's odd man rushes, whether it's breakaways, whether it's just better looks, and again, you limit yourself on the offensive end, you're not going to win. But credit to the Celtics, and we saw offensively last night, when they're not giving extra possessions away, this team is unstoppable. Jason Tatum, 26 points. Jalen Brown, 27 points. Marcus Smart, 24 points. When they are getting their possessions, they are scoring. They're the more physical team. They're the bigger team. We saw that play out again last night. They doubled up the Warriors in the paint, 52-26. to They out-rebounded the Warriors by 19. The Celtics grabbed 15 offensive rebounds. They were asserting their will. They were not giving the Warriors any second or third looks. They're getting easier looks at the basket. That is the Celtics game. In game one, they at one point went toe-to-toe with the Warriors in a three-point shooting barrage. That's not how the Celtics are going to win many games. It helped them in game number one. But that is not how they're going to win this series. They're going to win this series by what they did in game three. By dominating down low. By dominating the, the glass. Getting second looks on offense. On the offensive side of the ball. Limiting the second chance opportunities for the Warriors when they're on offense. I thought the Celtics did that to perfection. But the most impressive part about game number three. Was that the Celtics are able to do what they have done really all season long and all postseason long. They have rebounded and bounced back in the face of adversity. No team responds better to doubts and criticisms than the Celtics. I don't know why. Sometimes it feels like they almost need those doubts and need those questions in order for them to refocus and play better. But after their win last night, coming off the Game 2 loss, the Celtics are now 7-0 in this postseason. A perfect 7-0. Coming off a loss. They have never lost two games in a row. And again, any single time they've lost a game, they have bounced back to win. They have rebounded in the face of adversity better than any team in the postseason, which is a very important characteristic for a championship team But also not to mention, it's not just, you know, from game to game where they respond to adversity. It's in-game. I thought one of the most impressive parts of their Game 3 win came late in the third quarter. As we know, third quarter Warriors are are at it again. The Celtics went into the third quarter up by 12. And at one point, with about two and a half minutes left, I believe, the Warriors took the lead. They went from down 12 at halftime to up 83-82 late in the third quarter. And again, it's easy to think, here we go again. Third quarter, uh, third quarter Warriors got us again. Steph Curry's hitting a few shots. Klay Thompson's feeling it. It's easy to say, not our night. We'll get him in game four. But instead, you know what the Celtics did? The Celtics closed out the game. After the Warriors took that 83-82 lead late in the third quarter, they closed out the game on a 34-17 run. This is a team that does not get intimidated. By the, by the Warriors, that has a lot of confidence. 
They're more physical. They play good defense. And they're tough to defend. This Celtics team has it all. And again, the only thing I see that's stopping them is themselves. Is the careless turnovers. Is sometimes the mental lapses on defense. Where like in game one, we saw them allow Steph Curry to walk into open uh, three looks all first half long. Really, throughout the three quarters of game number one. Gave open look after open look. The reason why Steph Curry 21 points in the first quarter of game one is because he was getting practice shots. It's like he's playing 1-0 in the gym. Just open look after open look. When they are better, when they are tightened up defensively, when they're taking care of the ball on the offensive end, this team to me is unbeatable. The stats bear that out. And I thought game three, we saw strength on strength. The Warriors played well. Again, Klay Thompson had the best game he's had in the finals. Seth Curry had 31 points. Didn't matter. Celtics were that much better. They won by 16. They weren't. They didn't just win. They beat him. They beat him and left no doubt in the fourth quarter. And again, really quickly, the Celtics speaking of the fourth quarter, that has been the money quarter for them. We talk and we hype up the Warriors, the third quarter Warriors. And rightfully so. The Warriors in this series in three games are plus 35 in the third quarter. They've outscored the Warriors by, uh, they have outscored the Celtics by 35 points in combination of the three, three quarters that have been played so far in the NBA Finals. But you know what is not talked about as much? You know what the Warriors are in the fourth quarter in this postseason, or in this Finals? Despite the fact they are plus 35 in the third quarter, this Finals, they are minus 40. Minus 40 in the fourth quarter of this Finals. And guess what? The fourth quarter is a whole hell of a lot more important than the third quarter, and that's the reason why the Celtics right now are up 2-1. The Warriors have been a very disappointing fourth quarter team. Steph Curry is the biggest reason for that. He has struggled mightily. In the three games, are really two, because he didn't play one second in the fourth quarter of game number two, because it was a blowout. So far, in the two fourth quarters he's played in this NBA Finals, he has combined to shoot 3 of 10 from the field, 0 of 3 from 3, and has just six total points. Steph Curry, in the fourth quarter of the Finals, is a minus 30. So far through two games. The Warriors have been a horrific fourth quarter team. And that goes in part because the Celtics have been able to overcome adversity. They have dealt with the punches thrown by the Warriors so far in this series. And they've responded back better than ever. Celtics are winning the Finals. Because to me, the only team that has beaten the Celtics are themselves. As long as the turnovers aren't happening, as long as they clean up ball security, this team is winning the NBA Finals because there's no chance when the Celtics are playing their best and the Warriors are playing their best that Golden State is winning that matchup. It's not happening. We've seen it play out so far. Celtics are the better team and they are showing it through three games right now. So that'll do it for this edition of the Ryan Hickey Show. In case you missed the news last week, we are cutting down the show from twice a week to once a week. So now we are just live every Thursday. Now I'll give some more details when I'm able to. But the good news is there's a reason for that because getting a little more opportunities elsewhere. So I'll let you know where you can listen to me outside of just Thursdays. But I will be on CBS Sports Radio Saturday morning, 2A to 6 a.m. Eastern. So right after game five or right after game four, excuse me. Game four is tomorrow night, nine o'clock. Right after game four is in the books. You can hear me on CBS Sports Radio starting at 2 a.m. Eastern. So that's where you can find me on the weekends. But until next Thursday, as always, have a great weekend. Stay safe, stay sane, and we'll talk to you in a week right here on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network.